Meredith Monday. Stay with us. So, Chris, I preached my last sermon on Genesis today. Okay. It's done. I would expect a little bit more of a round of applause or something. <laughs> you finished the the entire book of Genesis? The whole book. Three, three and a half wow. years. So, three and a half years? Okay. Now you have my applause. Definitely. Yeah, but I mean, it was actually, a, I was a little bit disappointed to you. It was only three and a half years. It felt like a lifetime for me. <laughs> you know, I was kind of hop skedaddling toward the end of the book. Because uh, I'd spent so much time in the first 11 chapters. I thought, oh, oh you know, yeah. I've got a, it's going to be an 11-year series if I don't start, you know, moving. And that's because I was just juicing on the climb the whole way through. And, um, and, and uh, you know, he kind of chills out around that 11, chapter 11 mark as well. Or I suppose you still have the yeah, Abrahamic yeah. covenant, but you, you kind of move a little faster. So there it is. Three and a half years, whole book of Genesis. Thank you. Ah, I feel much better. It's <laughs> such a better response. Like, Chris, sorry. I finished my last seven of Genesis, and you're like, "Yeah, so whatever, that's awesome." Well, I didn't. Uh, sorry, I didn't realize that was three years in the making. Yeah, that's incredible. Totally. Well, how long did it take you to write this book? By the way, I think I probably put three, four months into it. You're joking, really? No, I mean, I I, I really dedicated myself to it, definitely. And wow. plus, I had a, a boss at the time who, when I had downtime at work, would let me work on this. So that, hmm. that really helped. Is that after you had written the Norman Shepard article? Was that already there? So, or? I mean, draft yeah. one was the Norman Shepard article. Okay, and right. Then, so that was in that time frame. Man, so you cranked yeah. the sucker out, didn't you? I really did, yeah. Dang, that's amazing. <laughs> well done. All right. Thank you. I feel a little bit depressed now. Oh, <laughs> I don't think I could ever do that. But anyways, here we go. Um, we're on chapter five. By the way, if you are just checking us out, then um, we're on chapter five of a book called uh, Tale of Two Adams. And it's written by Chris Kahi, the guy I'm speaking to right now. And um, we are going chapter by chapter through the book just to kind of build covenant theology from the ground up, Kleinian style, on Meredith Monday. And um, uh, it's it's a super helpful book. We recommend it all the time just to... You know, if you want to read some Klein, but you want um, some uh, a distilled version of it and and uh, a much more accessible version, and um, you know, uh, just summarized and added to by Chris, then this is a great book to check out. Um, so we're on chapter five, which is a little over the half halfway point now, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Right, because there's only seven proper chapters. So all right, are we only on seven? Oh, that's right. Okay, so we're definitely over the halfway halfway point. And uh, we're getting onto the good stuff now. So we might not do the whole chapter five uh, in this session. Uh, Chris has had a heavy day. And uh, well, like I just preached all of Genesis. So, you know, I suppose I have too. Um, but we both yeah, need a break. Mike. We need a break. And, and so we'll, we'll get it started, though. And we'll see how far we get. Uh, okay. But we're talking about the covenant of grace. And this is, man, this is it. This is uh, what everyone wants to know. Yes. You know, this is the one. This is the gospel. This is everything. So um, we start off by uh, talking um, about the, the the first gospel in Genesis 3, the seed gospel. Um, and it's in the middle of a really weird kind of context. If, you, if you've never even considered this idea, it's while God is cursing 
um, you know, everyone's, you know, the sin has happened, the fall has happened, as, as it were, and um, God comes in judgment. We spoke about this last time, the end of the world, and uh, there's indeed, there, there are curses here, um, and then there's this, this message about being bruised in the hill and crushing the head, and uh, what's going on there, Chris? Yeah, um, so we're really going to uh, hone in on Genesis 3.15 here um, in contrast to the last chapter where we were more interested in verses uh, 16 through 19 in Genesis 3. But in, in verse 15, you're right. Uh, God does say that he's going to put this enmity or war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and that the seed of the serpent is going to bruise the heel of the seed of the woman and the seed of the woman is going to bruise the head of the seed of the serpent, which, you know, Klein says doesn't sound um, too terrible. I mean, everybody yeah. gets bruises yeah. here and there, mm. um, but that's the Hebrew way of talking about death. And so, right. um, yes, uh, this champion of God's is going to die. God mm. is going to win by losing but in that losing, he is going to profoundly and ultimately defeat the serpent, mm. and that's that's the whole point. Um, yeah. And so, was that the the, the being sort of um, bruised in the hill is death, but not an ultimate sort of defeat idea versus the ultimate defeat, or it was right. that the contrast being set up? Well, I mean, we we don't really get. A clear presentation of the resurrection in Genesis three fifteen. Yeah, um, we do get that God's program is that His champion is going to win by the means of losing, okay. and that is just completely counterintuitive to the way we think of of champions. Totally. Um, I don't know if you like mixed martial arts, but you know, mm -hmm. in the UFC, nobody wins by being knocked out. Nobody wins by being choked out. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> that, that's not a champion. Yeah, totally. So, and and yet there it is, right? And and that's pretty vivid already. I actually, you know, to think about it in that way, to have a victory that's being promised there through a defeat is, yeah. I mean, that's that's a vivid pointer to what we know would ultimately take place in the cross. Um, mm -hmm. In terms of the the, the context of curse, uh, you know, what's going on there? Why have you got any thoughts on why, you know, why doesn't God just finish cursing everyone? And then talk about the good news. Have you ever thought about that? Do you think it might be something to do with, you know, the, the Messiah actually receiving the curse or something along those lines? I don't know. Hmm. It's just something I had played with. It, it just seems like quite a weird place to put the gospel, you know, unless... Uh, you, you're right uh, thematically. And I don't really deal with this in The Tale of Two Adams, but I think you're on exactly the right track. Hmm. And that here in this context of handing out curses... Even God's champion mm. um, really gets uh, a dose of curse on his plate. Yeah. Um, but he's, he's taking that for you and me. Mm. Mm. Something there, which is amazing. But yeah. uh, anyways, th there you are. I mean, you've been set up with a covenant, the need for a covenant representative, a last Adam, as it were. The tale of two Adams uh, are now in full force. And, um, and... You know, we, we can't, as you say, I mean, we just can't without this this champion. Oh, wait, I actually, I saw you used a, uh, oh, yeah, there it is. Uh, on page, do you realize, Chris, that on page 114, 
you have a hyphenated word, the Euro Sun. <laughs> it's hyphenated. That's Klein right there. Uh, yeah, you're imbibing the spirit of Klein. <laughs> I, uh, I, uh, I did have a good chuckle when I when I when I saw that. I was like, I know where he got that from. <laughs> that is the influence of Meredith Klein right there. Totally. And uh, yeah, look, you gotta you gotta get to love that hyphen. You gotta <laughs> embrace the hyphen. You need the concepts all woven into one, so that's good. But yeah, so what I was saying though is that you've got this euro, this champion uh, that that must come, otherwise we can't work our way to, to please God, as you say in the right. book. In order for God to be pleased with us, somebody else must please Him for us, which I thought was really good. Uh, good, not not help us to first become pleasing to God. Now it seems like you uh, you, you mentioned there that that's the the official position of the Roman Catholic Church and. Um, and then straight after that, you got a reference to Norman Shepard. What was going on with Norman Shepard on that point? What was he saying there? Well, he was wanting to make um, our obedience part of uh, what justifies us. And so in that respect, he um, fell in line with the official Roman Catholic position from the Council of Trent in the 16th century. Right. But I'd like to also point out that, I mean, that really doesn't make Rome unique. Mm. I mean, um, that's every world religion wow. versus um, Christianity. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, every world religion wants to see us doing something to please God, to mm. placate the offended deity. Yeah, um, and only uh, Protestantism that has really understood what. Uh, Paul and the, and the New Testament authors were saying, um, stand in contrast to that. Yeah. Do you know that story about C.S. Lewis uh, the, when he was um, when he was in the staff room and uh, and then they were all sort of mapping out on the chalkboard uh, all the various religions and and they asked him to 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 talk about what was unique about Christianity and he pretty much wipes it all off and writes the word grace in the middle. Have yeah, you heard that before? <laughs> I, I haven't, but that's amazing. Yeah, totally. It might, it might be one of those uh, apocryphal sort of <laughs> things, <laughs> but, but it's pretty pretty cool anyway. And um, and yeah, just just that idea. I mean, at the end of the day, Christianity is the only thing that's going to truly offer you hope. You know, uh, if you are right. sober about your position. And I suppose that's the thing that the text brings you at this stage to realize, well, unless uh, very vividly, unless there's a, a euro that comes along and saves, uh, we're gone. That's the end of it. Yeah. Um, but he wins by losing. And then you say that in uh, Genesis 3.15, um, God not only set his people apart from the rest of humanity, but he promised a savior, another Adam, who would succeed at keeping the covenant of works. Um, just before we get into the covenant of works thing and him succeeding, um, what do you mean... Uh, that God not only set apart um, a people at that point from the rest of humanity. Um, Do you mean, are you talking about the covenant itself at that point, being set apart with a covenant community, essentially? Right, right. Okay, yep. I just wanted to make sure I wasn't so missing. So kind of what I'm setting up uh, the reader for is the, the two lines that are going to begin to develop in yes. the Bible between um, the redeemed community yeah. and the, the unbelieving community. Right. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent, kind of right. thing. Got it. Yep. All right, excellent. And um, and so we jump over to the New Testament then to see that in fact um, this is quite quite amazingly showing the gospel um, as we said earlier 
you know, although in seed form. And you you spend a little bit of time talking about what we mean by seed form. And I know that anyone that's into Vas or, you know, just any biblical theology go, oh, gospel in seed form, amen. <laughs> it's, right. it's kind of the way it all works. Uh, what do we mean, though, if someone's listening to us talk about the gospel in seed form? I got a sense of this, by the way, when I was... Um, <laughs> I was uh, in in uh, preaching at an X twenty nine conference where you know it's not reformed, basically kind of Calvinistic. So you got that kind of platform to work from, and even so, a lot of them checking out on even basically even Calvinistic. So you've got a real mix, and I'm talking about the seed form of the gospel, and I'm going on about the gospel and seed form this, seed form that, and just mm. sort of totally forgotten that this was quite heavily in uh, you know Vassian slash reformed language, and. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, I had a p- couple of people afterwards look at me like I'd gone mad. They, they had no idea what I was talking about. You know, like, what, what, is, what do you mean in seed form? There's only one gospel that happens in Matthew. And, what, you know, what's going on? Oh, And okay. so what do we mean by that? If someone's listening, scratching their head going, seed form? Sure. So the analogy is to, I mean, when you plant a seed in dirt in earth Mm -hmm. and you see it begin over a few you know as you water it and it gets sunlight you see over a few days there begins to be a uh, a green shoot out of the ground and then you know leaves come out and whatever the plant is going to be begins to develop and you can watch this over time you know you can even see on youtube people who have taken um time lapse images of this kind of thing and you can see it um compressed into a shorter amount of time but mm. so what we're saying in this context is that genesis 3:15 is the seed of the gospel it contains all the genetic information that we get in matthew mark luke and john and the rest of the new, Te- new testament honestly yeah um but um in genesis 3:15, god tells us i am going to save you right and and that's important information it's not that we're going to save ourselves. It's mm-hmm. not that we're going to participate with God in our salvation. Mm. It is unilateral from God to us. And then as as history goes on from Genesis 3.15, we get more information about what that redemption is going to look like mm. on God's mm. part. Um, and, you know, we learn that uh, this Redeemer is going to come from a certain line, mm. um, through Abraham, through David, um, and we get more information about um, just even from the covenantal context that God, you know, the covenant that God makes with um, Moses and with Israel, that this Redeemer is going to obey a law on Mm. our behalf, Mm. um, you know, all kinds of things. And it it unfolds throughout time. So it's not just that um, a... I guess the way I would have put it in seminary was that a systematic, it wasn't that a systematic theology just dropped down out of the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, it was that over time, God gave us more and more information about what this redeemer would look like and what this re- redeemer would do. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. As you say in the book, um, as God does more redemptive deeds in history, the seed grows and blossoms as yep. he reveals that Eve's son will also be the son of Abraham. Later, the seed grows into a sapling as God reveals that the new Adam will be the son of David. And then Jesus arrives on the scene and, you know, you got the full grown tree with flowers and fruit. And, um, yeah, it's just a great way to see it. And as you said, it it contains all the genetic code, you know, right right in the beginning, you know, and Mm -hmm. um, and just it shows the great unity of the plan and how it all has this 
this intense in view. So I love it. Um, so hopefully, yeah, if someone's listening to this and, and, you know, I never really considered that before, then, you know, that's really the heart of it. I mean, we're talking about covenant theology, but undergirding that is biblical theology, which develops that idea. Um, and so uh, returning to Genesis 3.15, you say that, um, Eve starts to, even just this being from the Lord, I mean, you know, even the way Eve is is given an enmity against the, the serpent, you know, after her infatuation with him, so to speak. Right. Uh, even that is from the Lord. There's a sense of sovereignty, a, a renewed heart there, right? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting in Kingdom Prologue, Klein even talks about Eve as a convert to the new religion. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, that she converts Adam to her new religion. And so God is... Uh, redeeming her from that mm. anti anti God religion. Yeah, that's amazing. You know, just to think of all that happening right up front, um, that and so much more. But he, she has, um, she's named the mother of the living. Even that, amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, she has a son, and then you have these sons uh, that are born. And as you mentioned, they they are, you know, she no doubt is thinking of this promise. Right, you've got uh, Cain and Abel, and um, and obviously, Cain doesn't turn out that great, um, and he kills Abel. <laughs> so she has another son, and off it goes through Seth. Um, what was that thing? There was um, one of the sons that where she says, uh, "The Lord has given me another man," or something. Where is that again? Do you know what I'm talking about? I do, and it, you'll have to give me a minute to look it up if you want. My memory retention on this stuff is um, next level shocking. <laughs> Say no to drugs, folks. <laughs> No drugs. <laughs> I think it was Seth. It might have been Seth that that she makes that proclamation. I haven't got my Bible. In front yeah, of I think you're right. Um, so this is Genesis chapter four, verse twenty-five. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, "God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him." Yeah. To Seth, to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Right, that was it. So that's amazing, isn't it? In that she st- she voices her hope there. In fact, all those names are um, are amazing like that. Yes. In that you have this constant, almost the way we think of the second coming. Uh, they were thinking of that first coming of the seed and just right, proclaiming right. the hope. One of the most amazing points, I know we're not quite there yet, or we do get on to... Well, you kind of get to know um, uh, just a few paragraphs down, but just where, um, you know, at the end of where, um, uh, le- not 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 bad Lamech, but good Lamech, Noah's dad, um, where, when, you know, you can imagine how things had, had dwindled and become so terrible at that point. And, you know, it's almost like we they voiced this hope for the Messiah the whole way through. Mm. And, and yet it doesn't seem to be happening and everyone's dying and it's just, it looks really dismal. And then he says, well, you know, this, uh, our hope's got to rest on this one, Noah, you know, maybe he will bring us rest. And so, you know, it's almost like he's placing all of his hope on Noah as the, the right. kind of last hope they have um, right. for, for actually seeing this Messiah that's been promised from the days of Eve. And uh, which, which I don't know, I find particularly profound in that, you know, I mean, yes, he wasn't the Messiah, but wow, could you ask for a more serious foreshadowing and type of the Messiah, <laughs> you know, one who was blameless and through his works of righteousness brings the, the covenant family through the waters of judgment to the new creation. 
right it's just next level so anyways uh that's just kind of jumping ahead a little bit but you um you talk about i mean at, at the end of the day there they are there uh, you've got these two uh seeds two lineages uh two family trees as you put it um uh, developing um uh and, and we go through genesis 4 and 5 that way do you want to give us a quick rundown of that you talk about well, so a, yes chapter 4 ends with seth which i mean leads seamlessly and naturally right into chapter five but so uh, chapter four is mostly the unbelieving line of cain Mm -hmm. and um while they are unbelievers they are developing culture really which we talked about in the the last chapter totally and and it's fascinating to me that the bible doesn't um issue any judgment on that it just Mm. reports Mm. that they're developing culture um, but then it transitions into this believing line, mm-hmm. um, those who call upon the name of the Lord. And that's really what chapter five is consumed with. And it, yeah. it ends chapter five with Noah. With Noah. There we go. And, uh, and yeah, so just to see that lineage, I know that that would be um, news for a lot of people, even just to trace it from, from uh, Adam, you know, through, um, through Seth to Noah and just seeing this lineage emerge. Of course, it gets more and more profound as you move forward because eventually we get to Abraham and, you know, uh, but it's all this, this, this one sort of tracing out of this theme, the seed that would be given to the, to the woman and, um, and God keeping a covenant uh, people together and, and a lineage as, as it were. Um, but then we get to uh, uh, Noah. Uh, what's, what, what is significant about that in light of where this is all going in uh, terms of what you've said yeah. So, I mean, I see uh, two different covenants at work in the the chapters on Noah, and it would really be chapters 6 and 7 that would be um, a, a gracious covenant about redeeming Noah. And it mm. really does seem to be sort of a parenthesis here, you know, unique to Noah and his family. Mm-hmm. Um, but... Yeah, I mean, God is calling Noah to be a a preacher of righteousness to the world around him because, you know, as we get to in chapter 6, there's this anthropomorphic language, which which means that the biblical author is trying to tell us something about God in language that we can understand Mm -hmm. as human beings that, you know, God is looking at the way humanity is shaping up and um, is almost sorrowful that mm. he has created mm. human beings. Um, and so he's going to wipe out humanity except for Noah and his family. And so we're getting a picture of um, the covenant of grace, even in that yeah. covenantal transaction yeah. between God and, and Noah and his family there in, in Genesis six and seven. Yeah, totally. Um Man, it's and even just the you talk about it briefly in the book, but you know the way they are brought through to the new creation, and the way that mm-hmm. I know Klein talks a lot about this as well, and the way that the waters recede, and it's almost like you just—I had never seen those parallels before that point, and just you know, it's amazing. You see that there, there is, um, and even just with Noah, there is the as the last or the new Adam, so to speak. And you, it sets you, it sets you up for this great big sucker punch because you're sort of, wow, <laughs> new beginnings. This is going to be great. You know, look how blameless Noah is. He saved all the people. Maybe he is the guy. <laughs> and right. uh, first thing he does is get drunk. 
Literally. <laughs> yep, and then lay naked in his tent. And lay so. naked in his tent. I mean, come on, bro. But yeah, I mean, the, the shadow fades very quickly and mm-hmm. um, and enter the Shem, Ham, and Japheth debacle. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, what's going on there? With Noah gets up, he's like, um, you know, th- that oracle is super important too. That's something I totally underappreciated going through before going through Klein stuff. Uh, where he he maps out the table of nations essentially just from that prophecy over Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Um, I'm on page uh, what is it, 117 when you say in that first paragraph, um, Ham sinned against Noah by exposing his nakedness. Uh, it is no accident that Satan did the same thing to Adam and Eve. Mm. Uh, I love that point, and I think that's so good it, because essentially it's like he's revealing his identity at that point. Um, right, you know, and and that gives context to this really otherwise terrifying curse that comes upon him essentially, um, you know, which seems a little bit weird. Like if you're just reading the Noah story, and and you know, out of context, you don't see it working together with Genesis three and this whole thing. I mean, it feels like wow, but if you see how this whole thing is just, you know, it becomes almost just nothing more than a platform to declare God's ongoing plan. It, all of a sudden, just everything drops where it should, right? Right. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, this we're we're seeing sort of how a biblical theological analysis of the Bible works here, uh, just in this theme of nakedness. Yes, you know, and when when you trace nakedness from Genesis to Revelation, you can see wow, um, the devil's hand there. Yes, and even just the curse of nakedness mm-hmm. and Christ on the cross. Mm-hmm. You know, and nakedness, and you know, you've just got wow. It just gets, gets incredible. So he, deep. yeah, yeah. He, he takes on nakedness in order to, yeah, redeem us. Yeah. So the nakedness becomes kind of a, a symbol for, for everything. You know, we we have nothing to shield shield ourselves, I suppose, from God's wrath. At that point, we are, we are unveiled before Him in terms of our our wickedness and and. um yeah, it's just um, yep. that's everything that Christ is taking right there. That's he becomes the curse. He becomes the uh, the the one who who then gives us clothing, which is exactly yes. what happened early on in um, Genesis. So yeah, so much to say there, and uh, we're kind of I'm just very cognizant having spent three and a half years on Genesis. We're moving pretty quick, <laughs> but at the same time, I mean, this is the gist. You you want to get the the big idea, yeah. Um, but anyway, so you keep on going with Shem because um, we've got Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and um, Shem's uh, lineage then is identified as as the lineage of the of the woman uh, of the covenant line of the, the one that will bring forth the Messiah. And we move past Babel and all of that, and we get to Abraham. And so, just even to understand Abram at that point uh, being connected to Shem, all right, that's quite amazing. You know, it's not like a whole new story with Abraham, with a different guy who lived in another place. You know, um, it's it's this connected story. Right. Yeah. A genetic descendant. Um, so there's there's genetics involved and there's faith involved. Yes. Um, and it's not, I mean, it's not, when you read the text of Genesis, it's not like, and Abraham learned from his father no. about how God had saved you know, his great, great grandfather, Noah, you know, it's not like yes. that. Yeah. Yeah. But you can see that Abraham, I mean, it's clear Abraham believed God. Um, and that's why he leaves his father and his mother and goes to the land that God would lead him. Mm. Um, 
and that's that's the same faith that mm. led Noah to uh, you know build the ark and to uh, pass from wherever they started to Mount Ararat. Yeah, because in Joshua, if I'm not mistaken, because I know it goes through Shem's line through Eba to get to um, mm-hmm. to get to Abraham, and um, I know in Joshua, I think it is where they where they sort of talk about Terah's household having become fraught with idolatry and, you know, just living where he was and probably wasn't a lot to go on in terms of any faith that had been handed down anyway. Um, <laughs> right. And, you know, by that stage, it sounds like it was, it was a bit of a mess, but yeah, you even just have that sense of God's election coming through, you know, one way or another mm-hmm. as is constantly drilled in again and again, like it's all going to be down to God. And it's not, it's not, it's a, there is a lineage thing involved, but it's, it's not dependent on that lineage thing as it were. It's more just that is God connecting the story. Uh, it's dependent over and over again. We see, uh, according to God's promise and his election and his sovereignty. So yeah, I think that's a, that's a big point. Um, and so, uh, we get to Abraham and we get to the, the, the this big moment where, um, God obviously in, in chapter 12, promises those things but we get to chapter 15 and you've got this um this covenant moment that happens which is i, I think you know I, I just i know that you know being from the reformed baptist thing i know you got some guys out there that, that look at this and go well look at this awesome covenant of works and i i, <laughs> I, I gotta i gotta say like i just can't understand that in light of what's going on here um because you have the covenant of grace par excellence in this uh in this chapter, I mean, this this defines what grace is to me, you know, 100%. Yes. Yep. Um, I just yep. don't think you can get any more powerful. You know, I just don't know how you'd even put this anywhere close to works. So what, what happened, Chris? What Tell us uh, tell us what happens in this covenant, just as a quick and dirty overview. Right. So in Genesis 15, God puts uh, Abram into um, a, a sleep of sorts and appears to Abram um, as a smoking uh, pot and a fiery furnace. Um, and actually before that, um, Abram had cut animals, uh, a whole variety of animals into two pieces and, um, placed each half of the animal, um, in such a way that you had a, a, a pathway, a row. Mm. And so, you know, half the animal was on one side and half the animal was on the other side, which created this pathway and when Abram was in this deep sleep, um, God passed through this pathway, down this pathway as a smoking uh, uh, pot and a you know a fiery furnace. Mm-hmm. And uh, Abram uh, saw this in his in his vision in his dream, and um, it's it's God saying to Abram. Um, I'm I'm going to save you, and I'm going to save your uh, believers like you. And if I do not keep uh, my promise at this mm-hmm. point that I've made to you, may what has happened to these animals that you butchered yourself, mm. um, may what has happened to them happen to me. Yeah, totally. If I don't keep this promise, that's powerful. Totally. And the mind blowing bit is, you know, and it's just I still my my head sort of struggles to get around this, but. I mean, of course, we know that 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 God was good for His word, and you mm-hmm. know He wouldn't not do. But yet, something about that required Him to actually be the one who received that covenant curse, which is just Amen. amazing. You know, <laughs> um, it's 
yeah i mean so even even in that moment it's like i think it was klein that said you know he's he's um committing himself to the way of the cross as it were by walking through those slain pieces Yes, and it ties right back into what we were saying about Genesis 3.15. Yes, yes. This is God winning by losing. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's completely not what we would expect for the way that God would win. Man, totally. And so on that point, um, although this is a covenant that is being ratified at this point with Abraham, it's obviously completely gracious. We wouldn't say that the covenant of grace only begins at this point. It includes you know, Adam and Eve, and you, you right from that point, right? So that's when it begins, the first promise of the gospel, and here it's being ratified again to Abraham. So it's it's an ongoing, it, just thinking about this chapter and its title, The Covenant of Grace, and then thinking how this works together, um, you know, with the, with the preceding chapters, we've mentioned common grace, um, and I, I'm kind of wanting to just... Um, Almost jump to the end of your book, your uh, uh, your chapter, just to kind of get the summary with the little with the submarine diagram thing. But uh, <laughs> but basically, just just wanting to um, uh, piece together. So, if someone's wanting to think about how covenant theology is built from this biblical theology of ground up, and as we said earlier on in this episode, um, we need someone to please God for us. That's that's what still needs to happen. So that's one of the big themes I think we have to keep in mind: uh, the covenant of works. Um, is almost repeated in the covenant of grace, except, you know, it's it's done by another and we receive it freely. So, you know, I'm just wanting to make sure that we see how it all pieces together for, uh, as we're building it here, um, especially for those who are who are just kind of getting their heads around the system of covenant theology for the first time. Uh, we're saying that there's this gracious covenant that begins in Genesis 3.15, but it's, it's kind of a works covenant in the sense that, you know, you've got the Messiah who's being promised who would work for us and yet be cursed for us and therefore give it to us freely by grace. Um, and that's what we mean by that. And yet this is what's being further promised to Abraham and further ratified. Um, now, I'm just aware, you know, we're getting on with time. Um, so, you know, with that little summary in place, um, one of the things, just jumping to, I just wanted to end off with this. You say a little bit later in the book, um, you know, just, just working on this this concept of merit again, um, that there are those out there who really want to reject the idea of merit in the covenant of grace or talk about a kind of covenant of grace anyway. Uh, that that keep the word merit right out of it, and they want to do that because they feel that they're keeping it free from the errors of of legalism. Um, and I just think of Piper's comment there. You know, I'm just being a real. I appreciate Piper so much. I'm not trying to slam him, you know, or anything like that. But just one of the areas he'd really differ from what we're saying here is that, you know, he he, he doesn't he doesn't think that. Uh, I think I think you do actually mention um, Daniel Fuller, right, in the book. Is that right? Yes. Along with Norman Shepard. And I know Daniel Fuller was a big mentor to Piper. So it would make sense that, that he sort of imbibed this stuff. But basically, Piper's saying, listen, I don't want to succumb to any legalistic heresy by saying that, you know, Christ had to do the Galatian heresy for us. You know, <laughs> that's the way right. he put it. And, and, and I think that's just a, a helpful way to show how vastly different, you know, that idea is from what we're saying here. We're saying, firstly, the Galatian heresy was something else. But secondly, um, you know, there needed to be work still, right? This is the whole point. This is the whole need for a second Adam, which is kind of just bringing it back to your title of your book. You need, um, you need two Adams. You need, you need two 
um, workers of the covenant and federal representatives. Um, so I don't know if there's anything you want to elaborate there uh, in terms of just the, the way that applied to the Norman Shepherd controversy, because it might be a, just a good spot to fill that in quickly, just to give us a little prelude of what's what might be coming here. And, and then maybe what we can do is just kind of stop at that point and uh, we'll continue thinking about how that moves on from Abraham next time. Does that sound okay? Sure. I think it not only applies to Norman Shepard, but also to John Piper and to, I mean, all kinds of people really. But um, yes, you're right. Um, works is a constant thing throughout covenant history from uh, from Genesis to Revelation. It's just that, and, and the reason for that is that God's justice doesn't yeah. go away. Which is something that um, you talk about in the book, which is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, if it if God could just turn off his justice, then I guess we could have a, a covenant somewhere along the line where, um, you know, it didn't matter uh, mm. merit or works or things like that. Mm. But because God's justice is a constant factor, then somebody must obey him perfectly. Mm. And uh, once the fall happened, we couldn't do that. We needed someone to do that for us. Um, and, you know, the problem with the shepherds and the pipers is that when you exclude merit from the front door, inevitably, inevitably, it ends up coming in the back door. Right. And so, yeah. um, you know, we end up having to um, obey in ways that really turn out to be very legalistic in yep. order for yeah. our salvation to work. And that's exactly what you see in every one of those controversies. And it's just interesting, again, that Piper toward the end of his ministry kind of comes out with that stuff, you know, and, and just really right. makes it a thing. I suppose what he had tried to do the whole way through is really leverage the idea of God being sovereign in giving the gift of faith. And you do talk mm -hmm. about that. Again, we're kind of encroaching on that latter half of the book. But, um, you know, and so in that sense, kind of keep themselves from going full hog Roman Catholicism or something along right, those right. lines. But, um, you know, and, and maybe that's worth mentioning just in case, you know, anyone thinks that I just don't want to be one of those guys that's throwing pots and pans all over the place. And, you know, um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, this is something that's really important. I think that, that um, you know, you you have this, uh, we, uh, what this book so far, what Chris's book so far has set up so beautifully is this idea of merit being front and center. And um, so if you are reading through and if we are stopping cold here and you, you want to keep going through that chapter, just keep taking notice uh, of this idea of merit because I think that that idea and understanding is the game changer for a lot of a lot of a more generic understanding of you know just the way it all works in terms of the gospel and um, and it's even the the big distinguishing point within you know various reform thinking as well um, so I think if, if people can get their their heads around the need for merit uh, according to God's own covenant the the fact that uh, God had promised to grant rewards on the basis of merit and then that failed and this this uh, succeeds in the in and through christ then i think you've got got a long way to get your head around the whole covenant system um but let's leave it at that for now um anything else you wanted to add there chris or? i think that's good for this week totally good well hey thanks for joining us and thank you chris appreciate it thanks mike it's always good to be on mm -hmm.